Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 111. Last week we continued with the seven woes that Jesus was issuing to the, uh, you could say, the incorrect scribes and Pharisees among (laughs) those groups. Um, We saw um, woes such as you coined them as the first one was inside and outside, where Jesus was saying that he, these incorrect thinking and living Jewish leaders are living their lives as if they're cleaning the outside of a cup or plate, but the inside is completely dirty and unattended to, full of greed and self-indulgence, and calling them to clean the inside of them, like their heart and their soul and their mind, before, you know, transposing that to the outside concerning their actions um and then he he kind of built on that with the next woe which was whitewashed tombs kind of same thing um the the whitewashed tombs in their culture often were like we had talked about either physically washed or thrown some type of powder or chemical to mark them so that um they appeared noticeable clean so that jewish people wouldn't be stepping near them breaking that uh commandment within Torah to be near dead bodies but you know on the inside it's you're full of dead people's bones and lawlessness uh just adding to that effect and then lastly um the the final woe was the the tombs of the prophets where jesus was saying that for all their pomp and circumstance uh these these people in his day and age are no different than their forefathers that they kind of idolize because they killed prophets. They condemn people who are trying to bring God's message to the nation of Israel. And Jesus kind of calls them to complete their work. He says, like, fill up in the measure of your fathers, which was yeah. very convicting. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that, sure, these these woes were, they felt very, very specific to the sect of the Pharisees, and yet every single one of them is very easy to translate to us today, all of that. So, yeah, pretty hard-hitting stuff, not real uplifting maybe, but that doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, there, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, now, we didn't, we didn't quite finish the section. You know, we try to break things up in sections that make sense. There was one more little bit. So after Jesus had delivered the seven woes, he has one final lament uh, over the city of Jerusalem. So that's where we're going to pick up. You ready? Oh, yeah. All right. So we're in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay. 
Still not uplifting so much yet, but a very interesting thing. Uh, I, I, real quick, I want to point out verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. This is going to be very important for the where we head next. So hold on to that. But now let's focus on this because this is where we are. So Jesus, you know, he's speaking in, in a very interesting manner. If you were to take the whole thing in, just, you know, as a whole, we can see that Jesus, he's speaking on his own behalf. But that first verse, though, I don't know, it sounds, I don't know if we want to say it's more like something God would say, or maybe as if he's speaking on God's behalf. I don't know. And I know we see Jesus and God as one, but you know what I'm saying. Jesus very clearly like makes a distinction between himself and the Father. So that's what we're doing here. And in fact, I don't know, you might say that it sounds like Jesus is, he's speaking as a prophet. Because what does a prophet do, Samuel? Are they all about predicting the future? No, oftentimes prophets are delivering the present time message that God is wanting his people to hear and understand. Yeah, sometimes they do end up speaking of future things, but the important aspect of a prophet is that they are delivering a message on God's behalf, God's word through them. So anyway, they speak on his behalf in the first person, you know, and as if they're God, right? That's another thing the prophets do. They, they, they take on this, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said this thing, and then they go out and speak it, and, and they, they act like they're God, right? They're, they're saying it on God's behalf. It's, mm. it's kind of interesting and weird. And it's, I don't know, you look at that first verse, and there's a little bit of that vibe in there. Maybe Jesus is, is prophesying. You know, Luke's had him do it on occasion. But it's especially poignant, this particular bit, as it relates to the seventh woe. This generation will kill and crucify the prophets. And and Jesus, kind of, sort of, in this little section, seems to be giving this live demonstration that he is one of those. Now, maybe you see that there, maybe you don't, but it, it's the, the whole thing kind of fits together. It's kind of cool. And notice that here, Jerusalem is actually being used to symbolize the entire nation of Israel and all of her people. In fact, across the generations. So the the whole story of God and humanity has been the same. God wants man to flock to him, but they will not. He he wants to be a protector or a provider or, I mean, other things we've talked about, maybe a partner or something, but even his chosen people, his elect, the ones that have been given special status, knowledge, etc., even they, they will not meet him in this. And so this imagery of Israel being under God's wings was actually pretty popular as a theme throughout the, the Psalms, the prophets. And, and at this very moment, you've got the Messiah right there in their midst. And, and we've said it, he he could have actually initiated the kingdom, initiated this ingathering, but Israel was not accepting it. They weren't, they weren't repenting. They weren't coming alongside. And so they, they, just, they just wouldn't respond. So all of that was going to have to wait. Now, 
he he does this this I, I already mentioned verse 38 your house is left to you def, desolate so Samuel what is he talk about when he says your house is left to you desolate what is that house it's got to be the temple right yes the temple and and it's a prediction of what is to come so we're floating around here and everybody argues about the date so let's just say that we're somewhere around 30 AD what's going to happen 40 years from now temple's going to get destroyed yeah is it going to get just beat up a little bit? <laughs> no, it is going to get just completely leveled. Right. And it, th- here's the thing. It wasn't even just the temple. The whole city, ultimately, I mean, the, the result of this is Jerusalem is, for all practical purposes, it's just gone. So for clarity, this whole little section, I think that we can look at this as prophecy, uh, Jesus, in this case, is communicating God's words, God's message. And it, as we said, sometimes it even involves predictions of the future. And even though we might think of that as a relatively small amount, in this particular case, that's exactly what he is doing. And so after all of these woes that were specific to the people and their lives and all of that kind of stuff, the way they walk as faithful ones to God or Christ or whatever. Now he's talking about, you know what? Your whole city is just going to be wiped out. You've, you have blown it, really. But then he adds this weird little bit at the end. I tell you, you will not see me again, right? Until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, all right. When when did he say that before? Samuel? Well, actually, he wasn't saying it. Other people were saying this a lot before. Do you remember that? Um, was that during the triumphal entry? Exactly. Yeah. And so on one hand, it's already happened, and he's saying he you won't see me again until you say it. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe we mean again. Whatever. It comes from Psalm one eighteen twenty six. And and we've talked about it like back at his triumphal entry, and I think it's the same here. It's a clear reference to Jesus' second coming. So uh, probably an important point, because these episodes feel like this last week is really long. Things are going real slow. In real time, Samuel, how long ago was the triumphal entry? <laughs> was that like yesterday or something? It was just a few days ago, right? <laughs> it's, it, hardly any time has passed. So... So this is really relevant at this point. <laughs> and uh, that, that whole, like, like that saying or, you know, similar kinds of saying, that's actually a culturally, culturally consistent thing. Lots of people did that when a king would arrive, you know, whatever. And, and usually that was uh, maybe like from a return uh, of battle or, or something. But, you know, it could be many different reasons. But now... Well, okay. Uh, no, wait. Th- you know what? There's another one that's really important. I'm sorry. I'm kind of, my mind has got so many things rolling through it. Another thing that they used to do. So when a king would come to a city, there was kind of this thing where like the king would show up, he'd make some declaration of this thing or that thing or whatever. And the city as a response would would commit to or promise to do some sort of upgrade to their city in his honor. And, and it was this, okay, so the king is supposed to come back. The king is supposed to return, which obviously that, that kind of fits with our story, right? And now you have to imagine in Jerusalem 
there's been a lot of work going on. That's also going to lead into our next section about how grand the temple is and all this. So anyway, it's just a thing. But you can imagine the city's also going to get destroyed, and in some way it's going to get upgraded on his return. Now, some would argue some of this happens before his return. Some argue it happens after his return, whatever. We're not going to get into that here, but I'm just saying you can see all of these little hints to all of these things that have to do with current culture and things coming in the future, whatever. I, don't, I think it's super cool. Anyway, it's obvious here, at least I think, that it's obvious here. Jesus is speaking of the future since we know, like, he didn't just disappear right at this moment. Like, you will not see me again until you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Pling! He's just gone, right? <laughs> that didn't happen. So there's there's some bit of a, a future aspect to this. They, they, they're not going to see him anymore after this week. And, and then, you know, there's only a limited number who see him in the 40 days prior to his ascension, okay? But it, it could also mean that maybe they won't see him in a similar context, teaching publicly in the temple or, or something of that nature. But it's, it's, it's a very weird little phrase, you won't see me again. And anyway, there's just a couple of ideas how we might reconcile that or how we should read that or view it or understand it. Uh, but anyway, that's the end of his whole feels like a real Debbie Downer, right, kind of moment with all this stuff. But it's important stuff. We're going to move on. It's not completely upbeat after that. I mean, we're in the last week after all. But anyway, there you go. Samuel, anything on that? Um, I'm totally in agreement with you that this thing that Jesus is talking about concerning the temple and Jerusalem itself is in a future tense. And I don't mean to get nitpicky with semantics, but... Do you know why in verse 38, the way that Jesus phrases it, see your house is left to you desolate, like the emphasis on is left, like it seems very present tense, like I, I'm just wondering why the the language wouldn't read like see your house will be left to you desolate. Right, yeah. And, and you know, it's a great question. And I think, again, in all of these things, there's a real difficulty in understanding, were these Jesus's actual words? Or are these the words that Matthew wanted to relate? This is the way Matthew's communicating it? Whatever. So we've got that issue. And then there's this thing of, well, it's been decided. The fate in this particular case is sealed. You don't see it yet. It's not going to happen for 40 more years, but it's done. Your house is left to you desolate. You forfeited it. So there's that kind of aspect. And it, I, I don't know, Samuel, that's those, these are really hard issues because, and oh my goodness, I think it's uh, Paul in his letters so many times, he speaks of things as if they are done. They are here now in existence, and we know they weren't in his time. They aren't in our time. They're still future things. So there's a lot of that that goes on in the scriptures, especially New Testament scriptures. So I don't know, Samuel. Uh, that's all I got for you. I don't know if that's even helpful or not. It is helpful, but it's opening a whole nother can of worms that I should probably table for <laughs> another time. 
Well, that is up to you. I mean, that's why we're here to talk about stuff. So, your choice. I can't help myself. I, we probably talked about it a little bit, but if that is the case and Jesus is kind of uttering like this is your reality and it's happening, like how does that fit with – I mean, I know it's very prevalent in the Western church. And it mean, even I think we've learned about it in Orthodox Jewish thinking of the always being an opportunity for repentance, like repent one day before you die. Right. It kind of shows that like there's still a chance if you've got the breath of life in your lungs to change and turn from the ways that you were living to something different and something new. So how does that concept fit if if really it is, if the seal is stamped on their impending doom, so to speak. Yeah, this is good. I feel like we talked about this in a recent episode, and so this is really good. It's something that needs to be heard. God deals, let's just say, in in a simple way, on two basic fronts. On one hand, he does indeed deal with the individual. It's important that we see that, accept it, acknowledge it, whatever. It's real. On the other hand, he deals in, and we could put in many different words here, on a national level, when we're thinking about Israel, we could think of, uh, uh, I don't even know, more universal level, when we want to think of all of humanity, some, some sort of group thing. And so, from a national perspective, Israel had the opportunity for the kingdom, let's just say, back in the first century, let's say that the offer was real, the kingdom is at hand. They had that opportunity, but the nation of Israel rejected it, and so the kingdom was postponed. That, if we want to call that, the the fate was sealed in that case. But that has nothing to do with the individuals. There were still individuals, and we would look at it and think, you know, it's a pretty big number. I mean, it's measured in thousands. It's a pretty big number, but their fate was not sealed. There, There was no... They weren't missing out on the kingdom in the long run. They were missing out on its immediacy, that sort of thing. So in a similar way, listen, individually, you can still repent and accept and and be a part of, you know, call it the remnant, the thing that God is doing, you know, true Israel, whatever word you want to put on it. But that and the fact that, you know what? Israel as a nation and what I'm doing there and the temple and the city and all of that, uh, no, your individual repentance isn't going to affect or change that. That is going to happen. So do you see the the separation that I'm trying to make there and how that affects these kinds of saying, types of sayings? For sure. Yeah, yeah that helps. Yeah. That's a, it's a hard one because, and, and I'm, I'm going to, again, blame American churches. I hate, it always sounds like I'm being mean or whatever, but it, it is a very common thing. We make God and Jesus and the Bible and church and salvation, that we make it so individual. Not that it, it, it is inherently a bad thing, but we make it so individual that we, we completely miss out on the, the group or national or universal nature that's also involved. And so it's hard for us to see it and read it. Hmm. Better? Yeah. Okay. Done? Done. Big wheels are rolling. Moving on. All right. 
So, so now what we're going to do, the next section uh, is, so uh, they've been in Jerusalem, they've been in the temple, Jesus has been teaching. This has kind of been a long day. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, and this uh, has parallels in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and Luke chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew, and I think, not maybe not uh, exclusively, but we're pretty much going to be focusing on Matthew for a couple of chapters, because this is, this is kind of part of Matthew's jam, if you know what I'm saying. He's, he's really got a lot going on here, and Mark and Luke have some parallel stuff, but but it seems like the bulk of it remains with Matthew, so we're going to stick with that. But anyway, I'll start now reading from Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, what we miss from Matthew is it says, you know, they came to point out these things. If we were to look in Mark, it says, the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Or Luke, he wasn't talking about the disciples specifically, but he, they're talking about how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, right? So, so they're kind of they're looking at the temple going, but it's so amazing. <laughs> and what was it that we said in that previous verse? Your house has been left to you desolate. Desolate. And so here are the disciples going, we heard you say that, but but look, right? <laughs> so it's important you kind of see the, the flow here. Now, uh, the other thing about this Matthew uh, chapters 24 and 25, some uh, refer to it as the es- eschatological or eschatological, or I mean, you can pick your pronunciation, whatever. And we haven't talked about this in a while, uh, to be perfectly clear and specific, it's still Tuesday. All right? He did his triumphal entry on what day, Samuel? Uh, was that Saturday? Sunday. Sunday. He took the Sabbath off, That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so it's still Tuesday. He's leaving, and, and I guess we have to figure, well, maybe he is on his way back to Bethany for the night, because we've seen that's kind of his pattern. Goes to Jerusalem in the day, goes back to Bethany at night. So... Uh, and again, uh, I, I've already kind of sort of pointed out we've got his disciples, or maybe it's just one of his disciples, or maybe some people, or whatever. It, it, it does seem a little weird for the disciples to be making a big deal of the temple, but then again, Jesus did make that phrase, uh, that statement. It's been left to you desolate. The temple, and just to be clear, the temple was, in fact, a big deal. Number one, it was God's house. So from that perspective, it was a big deal. Jesus loved the temple. We have seen that numerous times throughout these Gospels. From that perspective, it's a big deal. From an, I don't know, earthly perspective or human perspective, whatever you want to call it, this temple was, I think it's fair to say, more glorious, well, certainly than they had ever seen, but it was I think, even more glorious than it had ever been, including Hmm. Solomon's day and all of that. It was, you know, in the practical sense, 
It was the very center of their entire lives as a people. And so if the disciples are looking at it and thinking that it's pretty awesome, you know, don't be too quick to judge. I mean, Jesus didn't really judge them, or as we will see as we continue, he doesn't. It's understandable from their perspective that the awesomeness, even of just the physical attributes of the temple, it was understandable for them to look at that and go, but, but, but Jesus, it's, it's amazing. Don't you see this? But just as Jesus has tried to tell them of other things that were to come, uh, he lets them know that whatever it is they're looking at, you know what? It's not going to last. In fact, he lets them know that this temple is going to be utterly destroyed. He uses the phrase, there will not be left here one stone upon another. Now, all right. I wasn't there. Samuel, were you there? Did you see it? Nope. No. So we have to count on accounts from other people or, or thinking from other people or whatever. Many insist that the destruction was complete, like literally no stone upon another. And you know what? They may be right. It, it depends, you know, in some sense, maybe upon the timing. Was it like at the actual moment? Did it take, you know, some time to pass after whatever? I don't know. But there are others who insist that, you know, some of the contemporary accounts, meaning, you know, 70 A.D., and and some of archaeology and whatever, they prove that it wasn't literally true. Well, maybe they're right. Josephus, he's one. He, he was quite clear. He says that Caesar had ordered that it be completely leveled, and that it was. Now, I don't know who's right. We've talked so much about, you know, the use of hyperbole, trying to emphasize the real point and all those kind of things. I I, I know this. It's not worth arguing about. He said the temple was going to be destroyed, and it was destroyed. And its destruction was utter and complete, no matter how you look at it, okay? So it's another example, or it could be another example, if Jesus just speaking like any other human in his day, or I would say in our day, or any other time in human history, he's using a phrase that communicates complete and utter destruction. It isn't required that the prophecy, or that this be some sort of prophecy in which every exacting detail must be literal. You didn't need people going out there you know, like with a little judge's hat and, you know, looking glasses and all these things going, so is that rock on top of this one? I don't know. I can't tell. It looks like it's leaning. <laughs> that, that wasn't the thing. That wasn't what was happening. There was complete and utter destruction. Jesus is communicating that, and that is what happened. So I'm just sort of laying that out as the beginning. Jesus starts with, hey, you guys may think this thing is awesome, but I got news for you. It's going to be utterly gone. Mm-hmm. Not very long from now. And that came to pass. Yeah. Anything on that, Samuel? I just think it's interesting that this is going to be the fate of the temple uh, whenever you add the details that, like, the one who, like, motivated, uh, you could say, the building of all of the extravagance that the disciples were pointing out to Jesus was... Herod himself, and you could right. you, you could say that he was 
doing that to add to this front of him wanting to be the quote unquote king of the Jews where he was exactly he was using like this kind of distant uh connection with his lineage of being Jewish and then like just grabbing hold of that little tidbit to assume his role in power over these people and then yeah. he you could say uh counteracted or tried to supplant the fallacies in that by doing things like building this temple like way more extravagant than maybe it should have been and it's like all of the stuff that Herod was kind of uh you could you could say the the foundations are about to crumble on him um, <laughs> yeah nice use there <laughs> <laughs> pun intended so yeah that is true that's really good and i mean it's funny because pretty much everything that herod did came to nothing and yet mm. he he ends up memorialized in the scriptures as you know a bad guy whatever but yeah. it's i don't know it's funny anything else that's it all right well continuing the story uh matthew 24 verse 3 uh, this also parallels mark 13 verses 3 and 4 and luke 21 verse 7 matthew says it this way as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Oh, boy. So <laughs> this, this is interesting. Now, I, I didn't read them, but Mark and Luke, they posed the question, uh, it seems much more simple and much more focused. Like, we're only talking about a single event. When will the temple be destroyed? And is there going to be any sort of sign that will precede that? But Matthew, one of the reasons I really wanted to read Matthew is because he has very clearly two questions. The first question is, when will the temple be destroyed? Because that's what they were just talking about. And then the second question is, what will be the sign of Jesus's return and the sign of the end of the age? Now, to, to be fair, there are some people that actually see that as three different questions. You know, question number two is the sign of Jesus's return, and question number three is the sign of the end of the age. Most people who see multiple questions there just see the last two as a single question. But anyway, Whatever, because they're so closely associated. I mean, they happen at the same time, right? But it's important that we pick up on the fact that there are two questions, because in all of the text that follows, Jesus actually gives two answers. So either he heard two questions, like we're suggesting there are two questions, or, and we've seen Jesus do this before, he answered their single question and gave them a bonus answer anyway. So <laughs> either way you want to look at that, I don't know. But we're going to go with there are two questions because it really, I think, brings out what's going on in the text to follow. And, and, but then you also, there's this weird thing, and, and I think we should notice it. The disciples seem to suddenly have an understanding of his second coming? What? They don't even seem to understand that he's going to die on a cross or whatever. Where did that come from? Well, we could also ask, 
is that really what was in their heads? Now, Jesus, the way he answers and everything that follows, I think that the question really is about his coming in the end of the age, the way we think of it today, more like a second coming, okay? But they, they may not have really had that in their heads. They could have been referring to something that comes from Zechariah. This is in chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. Samuel, I want you to read that, and when you're listening to it, try to understand how maybe, though we see it as his second coming and the end of the age that way, maybe they're speaking of something a little bit different. So go ahead and read, Samuel. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Okay. Now, I know that was a lot to read, but super, super interesting in that they, at this moment, were literally standing on the Mount of Olives. And that's part of what they're talking about here in Zechariah. Now, again, we do look at some of that and go, no, but that's talking about the second coming too. But listen... They're literally standing on the mountain, Mount of Olives, and instead of envisioning a second coming the way we do, they may have had something much more immediate in mind. Because look at what it says. The city shall be taken, houses plundered, women raped, half of the city taken in exile. And, and Jesus is talking about some sort of doom and destruction, temple getting destroyed, whatever. But then what's it say? Then the Lord will go out and fight. So, so it could be that they've got something more like this in mind. They're still thinking about immediate stuff to come to pass. And so, I don't know, remember how we've talked about they seem to be stuck on this idea, yeah, but Messiah, he's going to be this conquering king, right? And this Zechariah verse goes right back to that. Yeah, so maybe if there's destruction, I mean, it's immediately followed by the conquering king, right? So there's a lot going on here, and it's difficult to say who's really thinking what inside their head versus someone else thinking inside their head, whatever. So we're still going to go with the way we think Jesus is answering. We're still going to look at it as, look, you've got the destruction of the temple. We're talking about 70 AD, but then you've got his second coming, which is a future thing, and that's how we think Jesus is hearing the questions and answering the questions. So these disciples standing around here, they may have believed this was more like that Zechariah moment. Uh, We, looking back now, the benefit of hindsight, we know it was a little more complicated than that. And this this also, you know, it kind of speaks to the way the following narrative, it does seem to have within it an expectation of immediacy. And we're going to point that out as we go. But remember, Matthew He's recounting all of this, and when did he write all of this stuff, Samuel? Before or after the temple is destroyed? Uh, I think after, right? Before. Oh, man. So he, he know, he, he's still trying to put all of these things together. 
So even in his writing, he may still not have completely understood the timing and all of that, which obviously no one does. We're going to see later in the text, Jesus says it. Nobody knows but God, right? So it's an, it's an interesting, interesting thing, but we'll get to that as we go. And to be fair, do people argue about the dates of when these things were written, Samuel? Oh, thousand percent. Yeah, all the time. So, you know, whatever. I said it like it was a, you know, known scientific fact. Well, okay, it's it's not. People argue. But I'm completely convinced. It was before. Mm. So there's that. Gotcha. But anyway, there's that. It's kind of a setup. I, I spent a lot of time talking about it, but it's important for everything that follows. So are you with me, Samuel? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the disciples having this Zechariah frame of mind with the, you could say, the pathway or the cause and effect between the destroying of the temple and then the coming of the conquering King Messiah. And that that concept kind of, you could say it fits with how there's still this I don't want to be too frank and say this obliviousness, but even like all the way up to Jesus getting arrested and like eventually getting put up on the cross and dying, like his disciples still were kind of up in the air about what Jesus was trying to foretell them concerning right. his upcoming suffering and death. So you could say that the Zechariah cross reference in their mind they could be thinking like oh jesus is saying like this temple is going to be destroyed but like after that jesus is going to be what we've hoped he's going to be and he's finally going to like pull back the cape or the the button shirt and he's going to show the the big g symbol on his chest and he's going to finally take care of all the enemies that have been oppressing us and stuff so i just think that's a little uh detail to think about that they the immediacy that you were saying still probably was in their minds of of it all happening with jesus still being alive yeah and when you read the zechariah passage it's like man that really does sound immediate but to be fair if you go back and read it does it have to be immediate is it necessary that it's immediate no so i mean it's not even to say that they would be wrong thinking of Zechariah or whatever, it's just that the immediacy of these two events, uh, you know, being happening like in immediate succession, that isn't, that isn't the way it's working out. And so uh, you have to kind of go back and, oh, man, maybe, maybe it, I shouldn't read it that way. So yeah, it's super interesting. You just got to know, though, the, the apostles, all the disciples, it's hard for them trying to put all this together in their head. So let's go ahead. Let's start answering some questions. <laughs> Not us, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All we do is raise more questions. So uh, we're going to go on. It's Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. This parallels uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, and Luke chapter 21, verse 8. Again, reading from Matthew. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Wow. Doesn't that seem like a weird warning to give to the disciples who've been walking around with him for three years? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's get to it. Jesus, he begins by answering their first question. When will the temple and Jerusalem be destroyed? 
So the first thing he says, though, Jesus warns them, hey, you need to stay faithful and unmoved. You need to trust that Jesus is the Messiah and there is no other. Now, there, there, there will be many claiming to be Messiah. And in our context, we're going to say, at the very least, over the next 40 years, because a lot of stuff is going to go on over the next 40 years. It's crazy. But it continues far after that. And one of the most famous is related to the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, things like that. But Jesus is telling them, look, others are going to claim to be Messiah, and you can rest assured that they are false. Uh, Now, it's important that the disciples are not led astray. And sadly, we know, just looking back in history, many others were, in fact, led astray. Things, people that they thought Jesus was the Messiah later thought somebody else was. So, you know, it's understandable, understandable. Uh, It's interesting to note that a, a false Messiah was understood to be an anti-Christ. Now, that word's got a lot, of, a lot of baggage with it. I'm not saying the anti-Christ, as we might think of it in other contexts, but it's an anti-Christ. And it kind of makes sense. If, if, you're, if you're not the real one, well, then you're an anti-one in some sense, right? So that, that's where that comes from. And John, uh, he's kind of explicit regarding this in uh, 1 John 2.18. Read that one, Samuel. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And something just awesome happened while you read that. You inserted the word the. Oh. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, (laughs) and it doesn't say that. Right now, totally get that that's probably the 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 general meaning, whatever, but there have been many antichrists and and it, it it's it's not that it's there's just this one one entity, one personality that is antichrist and everything else you know no, there have been many, and so you see it throughout the history of Israel, and I would even say the church, etc. So anyway, there's that. All I'm saying is, look, Jesus's first warning when he's talking about, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed, his first warning is you need to stay faithful and unmoved. Uh, There are going to be many that claim to be Christ. Don't worry, they're not. I'm him. That's the end of that story. So seems like an odd place to start to me, but maybe they really needed to hear that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't have anything to wrestle with with that. It's just kind of odd to me. Well, let's keep going, see what else he has to say. Uh, so we're moving on to Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. This parallels Mark chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. And Luke chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. Matthew says it this way. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning 
of the birth pains. Now, I know people are hearing those words and they're going, oh, man, that's got to be about, you know, the end end, right? And I hear you. I hear the language, but he's still answering the first question. When is the temple, you know, and Jerusalem going to be destroyed? Now, it's very difficult for people. This sounds a lot like end of the age kind of stuff, but now let's just be reasonable for a second. It also sounded exactly like their next 40 years. And not just the next 40 years, it, it came up again and again and again. So this is the difficulty with predicting the end, the end of the age, Jesus' return, all of those things, because it always looks like it's time. There are always wars. They're all around, even in Jerusalem. I mean, how about the Jewish war that was from uh, 66 to 73? This was going on during the time which the temple was destroyed. There were nations and kingdoms fighting. Rome was always fighting with somebody somewhere. There were famines, multiple of them from varying degrees. Here's one, Samuel. Read from Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and on one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. All right, the days of Claudius. He ruled from 41 to 54 AD. There was a great famine over all the world. Uh, There were earthquakes. Hello, Pompeii, 62 AD. (laughs) How about the morning of Jesus' resurrection? Read that, Samuel. I, I cut just a part out from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 3. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Again, the point I'm trying to make is I don't care when you live in history. If you're going to point to all kinds of events going on all around the world, they're going to match some part of Scripture and make it look like it's the end. Samuel, how long have people been predicting the end? (laughs) Pretty much ever since Jesus was around. (laughs) And how many of them have been proven correct? (laughs) Zilch. Zero. Yeah. So when you hear this stuff, It's almost as if we've been trained to hear, it's the end of the world, the end of the age. It always looks like this. So notice, Jesus is making something quite clear. The end is not yet. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, I get it. I know you hear the language and it sounds very end of the age-ish, but in context, if you look at it all together, he's still just talking about the temple and all of the things that are coming on, especially what they are going to see in their next 40 years, which, I mean, it was just a tumultuous time. It was crazy bad. So anything on that, Samuel? No. All right. Just good that you pointed out. Yeah, he's got a lot he's talking about, a lot we're we're trying to fit in here. I don't even know if we're going to make it through the whole first question, but whatever. That's our style. 
The next section is uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14, and this parallels Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. Now, in this case, I am going to read from Matthew, but there's a lot of little interesting bits that come from Mark and Luke, so I'll read some of those too. So here's Matthew. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay? Now, moving over to Mark, he's got some interesting things. I'm going to read verse 11, where he says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he adds a little extra tidbit there. Luke, I'm doing a lot here. Let's read verses 12 and 13. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Okay, interesting extra little bit. How about Luke's verse 16? You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a second. Didn't he just tell them they'd be put to death? How does that equate with not a hair on your head perishing, right? They'll they'll die, but their hair's not going to be messed with. Apparently, yeah. But, but again, we, we have the fortune, the good fortune of hindsight. We know, look, there's a lot at play here, you know, and even leading all the way through to the resurrection and, and actual eternal life and all those things. So I'm just going to say, it's a reminder, we're still answering that first question. When will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed? So what do we got in here? The disciples, okay, they were going to face some serious persecution even before the destruction of the temple. And, I mean, these things happened. They were going to be brought before leaders in Israel. But interestingly, not just in, in, in Israel. Eventually, it was going to be other nations as well, and whether this was synagogues or kings or governors. And, and the, the stories that we know, the ones that we are so familiar with because they end up in our scriptures, are the stories of Paul. Now, granted, he's not included in this little group right here, but we know he gets included as apostle later because he's a witness to the risen Savior. But anyway, this is all going to be happening. Why? Well, it's for the sake of Jesus's name. They will be able to bear witness before them. 
So interesting side note, when you think you're being persecuted or all signs of kinds of bad stuff's coming on you, whatever, okay, some of this is an opportunity for Jesus's name, God's name, to elevate, bring glory to that name. Sounds awful for us, but I don't know. Maybe it's an actual good opportunity. But anyway, that's a side note. Again, Jesus points to the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. Now, that, that proclamation, it isn't going to be limited by social status. It's going to be from the poorest to the richest, for those with no power to those in the seats of power or with all the power, whatever. This good news was going to go out. And all of this was going to be happening even before the destruction of the temple. And that totally happened. Now, obviously, we know that it continues, and, and there's so much more to the story, but so much of this happened before the destruction of the temple. Now, we had that interesting thing from, I think it was, which one was it, Mark? Uh, yeah. If you were to end up in, uh, say, a trial or some similar situation, uh, you didn't have to worry about what you were going to say. Now, Samuel, do you remember this, how we've talked about this before? Here, here's the summary. You, you should be ready at all times with your testimony, a reasonable defense of your faith, that just knowledge of the, the scriptures and the story, etc. It's a way of encouraging and inviting others to serve God. But when something extraordinary is required, say, for example, like speaking before a king, okay, you don't have to prepare for that. And some might even say, as if you even could. This is more about legal defense, something that's actually outside, you know, the average person's realm. They're just, they're not going to have what it takes in that situation. Well, you will receive help from the Spirit. And if you wanted to go back, you could look at Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, or Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. You could go listen to our previous episodes, Gospels number 52 or Gospels number 81. We talked about all that stuff there, but Mark throws that in like it's an important thing. Uh, people are going to betray one another, and it's crazy. It's parents, brothers, friends. This is awful. The gospel is supposed to be the ultimate uniter, and Jesus spoke about this before. It's often the cause of division, even in the closest relationships. And again, we've talked about this in the podcast before. This goes back to Matthew 10, 21, also in Gospels number 52. The discussion in there actually spilled over to Gospels number 53. And, and that entire section in Matthew, chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, this is where Jesus is saying, hey, don't think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. There's going to be division. It's hard stuff to hear, but we, we've talked about it. Now, not only are there going to be false messiahs, there's also going to be false prophets, and these two are going to lead many astray. Now, sometimes I have to say this out loud because I think people think that I don't accept certain things, but, but I do. I do not outright deny prophecy in our modern day. In fact, I'll go further. I want it. I want to hear it. It's a desire of mine. However, I do 
approach modern-day prophets and prophecy with a healthy skepticism. Some people think it's more than healthy, whatever, (laughs) but I do. I have a skepticism toward it because there's so much goofiness out there. Now, your mileage may vary, but for me, my life, my experience, the score of, I don't know, false prophets versus those that appear to, hey, you know, that actually might be a true, real thing. I'm going to make up some fake numbers and go, yeah, that's something like, I don't know, 997 to 3 <laughs> or something. It, it, I don't see a lot of real prophecy going on. There have been a few particular moments, uh, words spoken by people, whatever it might be, where, you know what? In life, I kind of have to look at them and go, man, I don't know. Either they were just super lucky or that seems like they were actually hearing and delivering a message from God. But most of it is just people trying to make, the, it's like self-importance or something. They're just trying to make themselves look good or that, you know, they want to be thought of as something. I don't know. It's just goofiness. But anyway, the whole point of all this is just to say, you know what? Be wise. Don't be led astray. And Jesus is warning about this stuff for them in this time, you know, what's coming up, in, and especially leading up to the temple. But it translates. It, it, it relates to us. Here's another thing he says. Lawlessness will run rampant. In fact, it will be so prevalent that the result will be that many will cease to love their fellow man. They will fail to love their fellow man. Discouragement is going to win the day. Now, I'm trying to sell the story that, hey, we're all talking about that time period between where they are and the temple being destroyed, whatever. Samuel, can this and some of the other things we talked about, does that appear in many times across history? Of course. Yeah, of course it does. I'm not trying to act like, hey, these things can only be applied in this time. I'm just saying, as it can be applied to many, many times, it also can be applied to that little sliver of time, and that's the importance of the text here. That's all I'm saying. So, again, this was all true back in the first century. Probably sounds like it's true, you know, even today. There's probably a lot of people going, man, that sounds just like today. Of course it does. But Jesus offers encouragement in the midst of all of this. If you endure, if you stand, if you are faithful, if you live according to God's truth, to the end, what's the big payoff? You will be saved from death. You will enter into eternal life instead of eternal death. And that's where we get to that phrase, not a head I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Not a head of your hair. (laughs) That's right. Not a hair of your head will perish. And I know that sounds weird, especially in context, and it doesn't even matter if you're trying to make it fit with the temple or the big end or whatever, but go back to Matthew 6, 25. What's that little phrase uh, from there, Samuel? Read that. Uh, 16, 25. I'm sorry. What did I say? 6, 25. Oh, yeah, 1625. Uh, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yeah, yeah. And so they're going to lose their life. I mean, it's so weird. He says it. 
they will put you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. I mean, that's just so weird. But that's the, that's the thing. So it's true for us no matter what time we live in. And, and then Jesus says, and then the end will come. Okay, now I get it. If you, if you want this section of the text to be about the end of the age, what do you think the end is referring to? Well, the end of the age, right? But if you just stop for a second, does it have to be that? Could it not simply be, and then the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, the end will come? It could very easily be either. And just remember, in context, we're still talking about the temple. So I'm just saying, there, there's a lot in here, and I know there are going to people, they're going to be hearing me talking about this, and they're just going to think, ah, Paul, you know, sometimes you make sense, but that's just dumb. This is all about the end of the age. You know what? You go with it. If that's what you think it is, and you want to say I'm wrong, by all means, please do so. But I think we're making some sense as we continue through, hopefully, the, the, the evidence will mount, and you'll start to go, I don't know, maybe there is something to it, whatever. But I'm going to go ahead with this story, because I think it's valuable. And I think, Samuel, whew, you, let your, uh, you let your questions out, and let's, let's deal with it. But uh, we're not going to make it to the end of his first question being answered. Just so you oh, know. Oh, I don't actually have any questions other than just saying here at Okie Dokimos, we're all about context and based on the beginning of that section in chapter Matthew 24 verse 30 when this that whole discourse of Jesus started it was it came before um, with the disciples asking them when will these things be concerning the temple um, yeah so yeah it is one way to approach the text we believe it actually makes sense and we're going to go with it and you know you don't have to dis- uh, uh, dislike us or stop listening or you know whatever however you're feeling if you if you think anything that we say ever is dumb you know just say it's dumb from your perspective and then we'll go on but keep listening i think there's something here i think it's of value and we'll continue in the next episode you really don't have anything no (laughs) oh my goodness this is weird well then samuel let's stop until next time okie dokie Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.